What is society? As a man caught between worlds, Swiss and French, Catholic and Protestant, fugitive and hero, Jean-Jacques Rousseau was better positioned than most to answer that question. The product of a middle-class upbringing in the Republic of Geneva, he rose to become one of the foremost thinkers of the European Enlightenment. His writings on the philosophy of education, religion and politics shaped the world for the centuries that followed, providing a springboard for revolutions both political and cultural. In this essay, The Social Contract, Rousseau not only uncovers the unjust foundations of human society under the rule of gods and kings, but also proposes a vision for a fairer system, that of a republic. Although he did not live to see his adopted home of France throw off the shackles of monarchy and imperialism, every republic in the world today owes a debt to Jean-Jacques Rousseau and his writing. The Social Contract by Jean-Jacques Rousseau, first published in 1762. Man is born free, and everywhere he is in chains. One thinks himself the master of others and still remains a greater slave than they. How did this change come about? I do not know. What can make it legitimate? That question I think I can answer. If I took into account only force and the effects derived from it, I should say, as long as a people is compelled to obey and it obeys, it does well. As soon as it can shake off the yoke and shakes it off, it does still better, for regaining its liberty by the same right as it was taken away, either it is justified in resuming it, or there was no justification for those who took it away. But the social order is a sacred right which is the basis of all other rights. Nevertheless, this right does not come from nature and must therefore be founded on conventions. Before coming to that, I have to prove what I have just asserted. The First Societies The most ancient of all societies, and the only one that is natural, is the family. And, even so, the children remain attached to the father only so long as they need him for their preservation. As soon as this need ceases, the natural bond is dissolved. The children, released from the obedience they owed to their father, and the father, released from the care he owed his children, return equally to independence. If they remain united, they continue so no longer naturally, but voluntarily, and the family itself is then maintained only by convention. This common liberty results from the nature of man. His first law is to provide for his own preservation. His first cares are those which he owes to himself, and as soon as he reaches years of discretion, he is the sole judge of the proper means of preserving himself, and consequently becomes his own master. The family, then, may be called the first model of political societies. The ruler corresponds to the father, and the people to the children, and all, being born free and equal, alienate their liberty only for their own advantage. The whole difference is that, in the family, the love of the father for his children repays him for the care he takes of them, while, in the state, the pleasure of commanding takes the place of the love which the chief cannot have for peoples under him. The Right of the Strongest 
The strongest is never strong enough to be always the master, unless he transforms strength into right and obedience into duty. Hence the right of the strongest, which, though to all seemingly meant ironically, is really laid down as a fundamental principle. But are we never to have an explanation of this phrase? Force is a physical power, and I fail to see what moral effect it can have. To yield to force is an act of necessity, not of will. At the most, an act of prudence. In what sense can it be a duty? Suppose for a moment that this so-called right exists. I maintain that the sole result is a mass of inexplicable nonsense. For if force creates right, the effect changes with the cause. Every force that is greater than the first succeeds to its right. As soon as it is possible to disobey with impunity, disobedience is legitimate. And the strongest being always in the right, the only thing that matters is to act so as to become the strongest. But what kind of right is it which perishes when force fails? If we must obey force, there is no need to obey because we ought. And if we are not forced to obey, we are under no obligation to do so. Clearly, the word right adds nothing to force. In this connection, it means absolutely nothing. Obey the powers that be. If this means yield to force, it is a good precept, but superfluous. I can answer for it never being violated. All power comes from God, I admit, but so does all sickness. Does this mean that we are forbidden to call in the doctor? A robber surprises me at the edge of a wood. Must I not merely surrender my purse on compulsion? But even if I could withhold it, am I in conscience bound to give it up? for certainly the pistol he holds is also a power. Let us then admit that force does not create right, and that we are obliged to obey only legitimate powers. In that case, my original question reoccurs. Slavery. Since no man has a natural authority over his fellow, and force creates no right, we must conclude that conventions form the basis of all legitimate authority among men. If an individual alienates his liberty and makes himself the slave of a master, why could not a whole people do the same and make itself subject to a king? There are plenty of ambiguous words which need explaining here, but let us confine ourselves to the word alienate. To alienate means to give or to sell. Now, a man who becomes the slave of another does not give himself. He sells himself, at the least for his subsistence. But for what does a people sell itself? A king is so far from furnishing his subjects with their subsistence that he gets his own only from them, and kings do not live on nothing. Do subjects, then, give their persons on the condition that the king takes their goods also? I fail to see what they have left to preserve. It will be said that the despot assures his subjects civil tranquillity. Granted, but what do they gain if the wars his ambitions brings down upon them, his insatiable avarice and the vexatious conduct of his ministers press harder on them than their own dissensions would have done? What do they gain if the very tranquillity they enjoy is one of their miseries? 
tranquility is found also in dungeons, but is that enough to make them desirable places to live? The Greeks, imprisoned in the cave of the Cyclops, lived there very tranquilly while they were awaiting their turn to be devoured. <laughs> Even if each man could alienate himself, he could not alienate his children. They are born men and free. Their liberty belongs to them, and no one but they have the right to dispose of it. Before they come to the years of discretion, the father can, in their name, lay down conditions for their preservation and well-being, but he cannot give them, irrevocably and without conditions. Such a gift is contrary to the ends of nature and exceeds the rights of paternity. It would therefore be necessary, in order to legitimise an arbitrary government, that in every generation the people should be put in a position to accept or reject it. But, were this so, the government would no longer be arbitrary. To renounce liberty is to renounce being a man, to surrender the rights of humanity and even its duties. For him who renounces everything, no indemnity is possible. Such a renunciation is incompatible with man's nature. To remove all liberty from his will is to remove all morality from his acts. Finally, it is an empty and contradictory convention that sets up, on the one side, absolute authority, and on the other, unlimited obedience. Is it not clear that we can be under no obligation to a person for whom we have the right to exact everything? Does not this condition alone, in the absence of equivalence or exchange, in itself involve the nullity of the act? For what right can my slave have against me, when all that he has belongs to me, and his right being mine, this right of mine against myself? It is a phrase devoid of meaning. So, from whatever aspect we regard this question, the right of slavery is null and void, not only as being illegitimate, but also because it is absurd and meaningless. The words slave and right contradict each other, and are mutually exclusive. It will always be equally foolish for a man to say to a man or to a people, I make with you a convention wholly at your expense and wholly to my advantage. I shall keep it as long as I like, and you will keep it as long as I like. Even if I granted all that I have been refuting, the friends of despotism would be no better off. There will always be a great difference between subduing a multitude and ruling a society. Even if scattered individuals were successfully enslaved by one man, however numerous they might be, I still see no more than a master and his slaves, and certainly not a people and its ruler. I see what may be termed an aggregation, but not an association. There is as yet neither public good nor body politic, the man in question, even if he is enslaved half the world, is still only an individual. His interest, apart from that of others, is still a purely private interest. If this same man comes to die, his empire, after him, remains scattered and without unity, as an oak that falls and dissolves into a heap of ashes when the fire has consumed it. The Social Compact I suppose men to have reached the point at which the obstacles in the way of their preservation in the state of nature show their power of resistance to be greater 
than the resources at the disposal of individual for his maintenance in that state. That primitive condition can then subsist no longer, and the human race would perish unless it changed its manner of existence. But as men cannot engender new forces, but only unite and direct existing ones, they have no other means of preserving themselves than the formation by aggregation of a sum of forces great enough to overcome the resistance. These they have to bring into play by means of a single motive power and cause to act in concert. The sum of forces can arise only where several persons come together, but as the force and liberty of each man are the chief instruments of his self-preservation, how can he pledge them without harming his own interests and neglecting the care he owes to himself? This difficulty, in its bearing on my present subject, may be stated in the following terms. The problem is to find a form of association which will defend and protect with the whole common force the person and goods of each associate, and which in each, while maintaining and uniting himself with all, may still obey himself alone and remain as free as before. This is the fundamental problem of which the social contract seeks to provide the solution. The clauses of the contract, properly understood, may be reduced to one, the total alienation of each associate together with all his rights to the whole community, for, as each gives himself absolutely, the conditions are the same for all. And, this being so, no one has any interest in making them burdensome to others. If, then, we discard from the social contract what is not of its essence, we shall find that it reduces itself to the following terms. Each of us puts his person and all his power in common under the supreme direction of the general will, and in our corporate capacity we receive each member as an indivisible part of the whole. At once, in place of the individual personality of each contracting party, this act of association creates a moral and collective body, composed of well, as many members as the assembly contains votes, and receiving from this act its unity, its common identity, its life and its will. The Sovereign This formula discussed above showed us that the act of association comprises a mutual undertaking between the public and the individuals, and that each individual, in making a contract, as we may say, with himself, is bound in a double capacity. As a member of the sovereign, he is bound to the individuals, and as a member of the state, to the sovereign. But the maxim of civil right, that no one is bound by undertakings made himself, does not apply in this case, for there is a great difference between incurring an obligation to yourself and incurring one to a whole of which you form a part. Attention must further be called to the fact that public deliberation, while competent to bind all the subjects to the sovereign, because of the two different capacities in which each of them may be regarded, cannot, for the opposite reason, bind the sovereign to itself, and 
that it is consequently against the nature of the body politic for the sovereign to impose on itself a law which it cannot infringe. Being able to regard itself in only one capacity, it is in the position of an individual who makes a contract with himself. And this makes it clear that there is neither nor can there be any kind of fundamental law binding on the body of the people, not even the social contract itself. This does not mean that the body politic cannot enter into undertakings with others, provided the contract is not infringed by them. For, in relation to what is external to it, it becomes a simple being, an individual. But the body politic, or the sovereign, drawing its being wholly from the sanctity of the contract, can never bind itself, even to an outsider, to do anything derogatory to the original act. For instance, to alienate any part of itself, or to submit to another sovereign. Violation of the act by which it exists would be self-annihilation. And that which is itself, nothing can create nothing. As soon as this multitude is so united in one body, it is impossible to offend against one of the members without attacking the body whole, and still more to offend against the body without the members resenting it. Duty and interest therefore equally oblige the two contracting parties to give each other their help, and the same men who would seek to combine in their double capacity all the advantages dependent upon that capacity. Again, the sovereign, being formed wholly of the individuals who compose it, neither has nor can have any interest contrary to theirs, and consequently the sovereign power need give no guarantee to its subjects, because it is impossible for the body to wish to hurt all its members. The sovereign, merely by virtue of what it is, is always what it should be. This, however, is not the case with the relation of the subjects to the sovereign, which, despite the common interest, would have no security that they would fulfil their undertakings, unless it found means to assure itself of their fidelity. In fact, each individual, as a man, may have a particular will contrary or dissimilar to the general will which he has as a citizen. His particular interest may speak to him quite differently from the common interest. His absolute and naturally independent existence may make him look upon what he owes to the common cause as a gratuitous contribution, the loss of which will do less harm to others than the payment of it is burdensome to him. And, regarding the moral person which constitutes the state as a fictional person, because not a man, he may wish to enjoy the rights of citizenship without being ready to fulfil the duties of a subject. The continuance of such an injustice could not but prove the undoing of the whole body politic. In order, then, that the social contract may not be an empty formula, it tacitly includes the understanding, which alone can give force to the rest, that whoever refuses to obey the general will shall be compelled to do so by the rest of the whole body. This means nothing less than that he will be forced to be free, for this is the condition which, by giving each citizen to his country, secures him against all personal dependence. In this lies the key to the working of the political machine, 
This alone legitimizes civil undertakings, which, without it, would be absurd, tyrannical, and liable to the most frightful abuses. A Conclusion Now that I have laid down the true principles of political right and tried to give the state a basis of its own to rest on, I ought next to strengthen it by its external relations, which would include the law of nations, commerce, the right of war and conquest, public rights, leagues, negotiations, treaties, etc. But all this forms a new subject that is far too vast for my narrow scope. I ought throughout to have kept to a more limited sphere. <laughs>